friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Alex, Andy, you had you know, something I, you wanted to ask me about? That's absolutely right. I did. Um, it's been a while since we've done a House to Astonish bit and looked at a random comic book character. I wonder if we should do that and, and come up with a new plot. And then you you basically, of your own accord, did this on Twitter uh, on the day we're recording. And, and I think it's really damn interesting and, and fun to talk about. So will you please tell me about your pitch for a rebooted MCU Magneto. Uh, sure. So I was on Twitter when I was working because I do that sometimes. Um, and Magneto was trending on Twitter for a dumb reason. Um, I'm not even gonna get, not even gonna entertain the, that reason why. A lot of people thought it was like a, oh, Magneto's in the Loki show. No, it, it was a dumb reason. Don't bother. But. While I was scrolling these tweets about Magneto, I read a few random tweets talking about how apparently there have there are these considerations being made, uh, rumors, really, let's just be honest, that when the X-Men and the X-Men characters get introduced into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they're going to redo Magneto's origin. Historically, mm. Magneto is a character who was a survivor of the Holocaust. He is Jewish. Um, that was not in his original origin. That's a kind of a, I think that was a Claremont thing. Uh, I know Claremont certainly developed it, developed it more, but for, for a very long time for, you know, 40 or 50 years now, Magneto has been a Jewish character and a survivor of the Holocaust. And that's been central to his character. And that's created problems in the comics over the years because you can't sliding timescale the Holocaust, You know, you can do Tony Stark originated as a Vietnam War character and you can easily update that to, oh, now he now his shit happened in the Gulf War. Okay, now his shit happened in the Iraq War. You can do that. You can't do that with the Holocaust. You just you can't. Right. So uh, in the comics, they've gotten around this by de-aging him and sliding the timescale or ignoring it or just pretending that he's not like 90 years old, but... If he is, he's a ripped 90. Yeah, but he also went through a machine that, like, took a bunch of decades off of his life. And it's, it's, comics are stupid. (laughs) Um, But but my pitch, uh, what I, uh, a lot of people are saying that, like, okay, so the MCU um, might try and do something new. Um, Maybe instead of making him a Holocaust survivor, they make him the descendant of Holocaust survivors. Or... Uh, And this would be just stupid. They take one of their uh, vaguely Eastern European fictional nations in Marvel, uh, like Genosha or Latveria or Sokovia, and create a genocide there and basically do a pretend Holocaust in-universe. And that's a very bad idea. And and just real quick on that, that they've shown a willingness to do that in uh, Captain America and the Winter Soldier where they basically just, and in WandaVision actually, where they basically was just like, yeah, Sokovia is a random Eastern Bloc post-Iron Curtain Balkan nation. Insert here. Tragedy. Yeah. So this is this is some of the things that have been thrown. And again, this is all rumor mill. We don't actually know what Marvel's going to do. They might ignore his origins entirely, or they might just do the origins and ignore that there's any problems. Who the fuck knows? But my pitch 
what I think is the only acceptable way to do a non-Jewish, non-Holocaust surviving Magneto is to make him Palestinian. (laughs) Instead, what? I read this and just galaxy brain like gasped like, oh, that's juicy and I love it. Yeah. And, And let's be clear. Marvel will never do this. Disney will never do this. If they announced it, APAC would announce a, like, boycott against any and all Disney properties. Disney could survive it, but they won't because they're cowards. Um, but here's 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 my point. Imagine a Palestinian Magneto. Instead of surviving the Holocaust, instead of his losing his family in the Holocaust, he loses them in the Six Days War. You get the flashback scenes of 200 tanks entering into the West Bank of... The bomber planes dropping west white phosphorus of occupation. Instead of having the um, the numbers tattooed on his forearms, he pulls up his sleeves and there are white phosphorus burns from IDF from IDF white phosphorus bombs. You get the scene where IDF soldiers pull desert eagles on a teenage Magneto who's trying to like shepherd away a family and he bends the desert eagle in their hands you get the scene where he tears the roof off of the un and gets into the middle of them and asks if he has their attention or if they would prefer that he just remain a passive observer for those of you who don't know palestine is not an official member of the un they just have an observational representative who can't vote or do anything or have any power but just sits there and watches it's bullshit i want the scene where like apocalypse is trying to pitch magneto into becoming war um or death or what have you and Ma- and he says this like thing where he talks about being this Egyptian god that has reigned through the centuries and Magneto just snidely being like the power of the Egyptians has let me down in the past like i i want like dark-skinned Palestinian Magneto if he is like a child during the 6 days war he's probably born in the early 60s you get him to be like a 50 or 60 year old man now you get a good two decades out of an actor with that or you can conceivably hell uh how long was ian mckellen in the seat like he started in 2000 um days of future past was what um 2014 uh, it had to be a, I think 2012. Yeah. So you got 12 years out of Ian McKellen and I'm pretty sure he was well over 60 when he did that role. So you could, this could work y'all. And this is the only way to do that story. Well, you know, my favorite thing about this, I, I think what? this is brilliant. I, and, you know, I agree that, uh, there's absolutely no way it works, but my favorite thing about the idea of Palestinian Magneto is that it is canonical that Charles Xavier is pro-Israel and Gabriel Holler and fucking Legion, Charles Xavier's son with Gabriel Holler, are Israeli. (laughs) Beyond the fact that it's so perfectly poignant that Charles Xavier, like, like it tells you everything you need to know in a nerd perspective that, yeah, Charles Xavier is pro-Israel. What does that say about both of them? 
But like that is just such a it's it's built in practically. I didn't even think of that, but you're right. Holy shit, Andrew. So Oh my god. I suppose all we can uh, do is pat ourselves on the back and um you know as far as I know they they don't have any X-Men content like officially laid out or planned, so I'm not going to say Kevin Feige if you're listening, but Kevin Feige's like assistant if if maybe somehow you're listening, we'll, we'll do it. Like I'll do it for Listen, free. If, if I can find it like I put I I and I put hashtag Palestinian Magneto in my shit. Like let's make that a thing. Hashtag Palestinian Magneto. It'll never happen. There's no like Disney won't even fund that like that that, that meeting, focus that group. Pitch, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that's that's never going to happen. Not a chance in hell. But like Andy, we've had conversations about how do you maintain longevity in comics. That's a reboot that, like, Black Nick Fury worked out way better than anyone expected it to. Yeah. Yeah. I, if I could just have Palestinian Magneto. Oh, my. Like, his name can't be Eric Lenscher anymore, but I'm sure we can find a way around that. I, I do not know the language of that particular or the various languages of that particular region and what would work as a derivative or as a parallel but like give me just 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 i give it to me please i will give you all of i would pay the 30 dollars or whatever the fuck disney was asking for to rent whatever that movie was on disney plus to watch any Marvel movie with Palestinian Magneto. It doesn't even need to be an X-Men property. What's the dumbest Mar- I would watch Howard the Duck with Palestinian Magneto in it for like 15 seconds after the credits. I don't care. Well, there you go. So let's we'll we'll get it trending on Twitter and Disney, there's there's at least sixty dollars in your pocket. I, I think that's well worth it. Welcome I'm, to love hate relationship. <laughs> <laughs> you you come here for our loves, our hates, and your relationship questions. You stay because we spend ten minutes at the top talking about a objectively brilliant idea in Palestinian Magneto. <laughs> Uh, thanks for listening everybody so yes um we're gonna move on into some completely unrelated things every episode one of us talks about something we love the other talks about something we hate and we take yours and the internet's relationship questions and alex putting it back in your hands because you've got the love that's right i do so um andy my topic here i know this is someone that you are at least somewhat familiar with uh, so I'm just going to keep it nice and open-ended. And to intro here, typical question, what can you tell me about your experiences with the work of one Lewis Black? Yeah, so I can't quite tell you how I came to know about Lewis Black. I, I don't remember the first time I ever saw him, though undoubtedly it was probably you know his 30-minute Comedy Central Presents um, set. Uh, you know, he had three of them. 
Okay, then then absolutely one of those. He was just sort of a comedian that I I knew about and you know, would hear somebody screaming every once in a while and and recognize that it wasn't high pitched enough to be Kinnison. <laughs> so just sort of along with all of the other stand-up comedians, your your Mitch Hedbergs, your Ron Whites just sort of became a person that I I would listen to in three minute chunks as they do a bit. And then finally one day I was actually like, okay, no, no, no. I need to like sit down and actually digest this. Let me download one of his specials and just was absolutely blown away by the, uh, the wind rushing out of his mouth as he screamed into the microphone about being (laughs) just this completely, angry stereotypical new yorker bitter angry left-leaning um wonderfully angry comedian and what you do is build a big fucking thing i don't care what it is as long as it's big and it's a fucking thing i love that you said angry like three or four times i feel like that's appropriate The man played anger personified in a Disney movie. This is very true. (laughs) Oh, God, it's very true. I appreciate that. I think kind of for people our age, roughly, those specials, uh, those Comedy Central Presents specials really, like, all of us remember flipping through and seeing at least a few minutes of it. Oh, yeah. They've, Um, They've got a special place in my heart. Sure. I love that. I appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you, Andy, for that introduction. It's pretty much exactly what I was expecting there. Uh, So with that, I'm going to kind of just launch straight in to, you know, my background and and a little bit of info here. My topic for uh, this show is Lewis Black. And I'm going to get into a little bit about him. Born in August of 1948 in Washington, D.C., Lewis Niles Black is a former playwright, author, actor, comedian, and satirist. His parents were a teacher and an artist-slash-mechanical engineer uh, of Jewish descent, and his grandparents were actually Russian immigrants. Uh, He graduated from UNC Chapel Hill, where he studied playwriting in 1970, lived in D.C. working for the Appalachian Regional Commission and writing plays and doing stand-up on the side, until moving on to the Yale School of Drama, where he graduated with an MFA in 1977. From 1980 until 1989, he was the playwright-in-residence for the historic West Bank Cafe Downstairs Theater Bar in New York City, co-writing hundreds of one-acts in that time. Um, Are you familiar with the West Bank Cafe Downstairs Theater Bar, Andy? I am not. I am completely unaware of this and pretty much unaware that Lewis Black had any like actual theatrical experience in that way. So no, I'm, I'm oh, coming in like, blind. I, I, I do want to talk about that. Um, for reference, uh, the West Bank Cafe downstairs theater bar, uh, it's located in Hell's Kitchen and it fa- it's famous for having a number of very notable like theater and movie people there. Tennessee Williams frequented there. Um, When Bruce Willis, before he was famous, he was actually a bartender there, and that's how we made a lot of his connections. 
it is kind of a very well-known meeting place historically for people of the New York theater scene. Hmm. And and they would host shows. They actually would have like one-act plays written by a playwright in residence or visiting playwrights and they would do these short experimental theatrical works in like on the stage of what is essentially a very large like 80 seater with a full bar in the basement of an apartment complex of all places. Well, yeah, I mean, that's where all the best uh, underground theater comes from without a doubt. (laughs) Yeah. So this is, this is shit that I like, I was a fan of Lewis black for years um, before I learned any of this stuff. Uh, And and he talks about it in his books, uh, which I'll get into, but yeah, the man like, cut his teeth he he spent almost a decade writing plays two decades technically because while he was working a day job um for you know the appalachian regional commission he was also just writing plays and getting them performed in local theaters and doing stand-up the entire time so he spent before he ever like even started even started doing this work full time he spent almost two decades working on this stuff. You spent a decade doing it on the side, then a decade writing plays professionally. And then you get to the 90s, and he switched over to stand-up and acting full-time. He got bit parts in movies and shows like Law & Order and Jacob's Ladder. And when I say bit parts, I mean he was like in one scene of this Law & Order special oh, tell uh, me, uh, this law and order episode tell me he was disgruntled dock worker stacking boxes that is my favorite part in that entire <laughs> um i don't th- i think he played like a bartender in sure. one episode yeah, I gotcha. he plays a he, he plays a doctor who has like two lines in jacob's ladder it's a blink and you miss it role but he did that for like 10 years he just did bit parts in tv and movies and did stand up and his you know he actually got a segment on The Daily Show in 96, back when Craig Kilborn was still hosting it. Um, and that kind of gave him some exposure. But his quote-unquote big break came in 1998. At age 50, mind you. He was 50 when he did this. you love to see it. <sighs> 1998, when he did his first of his three Comedy Central Presents specials. He did one in 98, one in 2000, and one in 2002. And all of them got in heavy syndication. But that that Comedy Central special, that first one, was really what kind of made it so that he could work all the time. Um, from there, he just relentlessly kept working. He released more than a dozen specials since then, in the 23-some-odd years since then. Um, he hosted his own show on Comedy Central, The Root of All Evil, which was great. If you ever got, you can YouTube segments of it. It's, it was a great premise and a great show. He had his own, he, like I said, he's had his own segment on The Daily Show since 96, and it's still running now. He has outlasted all three hosts for The Daily Show with his segment Back in Black, which is essentially him ranting on a political topic. It doesn't appear every episode, but like he appears probably. What do you think? Like a couple times a month, I think, just doing these segments. And he's appeared in movies and TV ranging from, as you referenced, Inside Out for Disney, um, where he played anger, hilariously, um, to Accepted, to even parts on shows like The Big Bang Theory. He's also released three books, um, Nothing Sacred, 
which is his autobiography. Me of Little Faith, which is a memoir slash essay collection on atheism. And I'm Dreaming of a Black Christmas, which is the least of his books, but it's basically an extended rant on how much he hates Christmas, which is what you expect from Lewis Black, really. Right, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But that's kind of like a summary of his work. And and I, I want to take a pause here to kind of reflect on that, because I think I didn't learn about his time as a playwright until I had read his autobiography. Um, I didn't know anything about it before that, because he never he doesn't talk about that in his stand up act. He doesn't go into those stories, but he talks about it in the autobiography. The man spent, again, like this many years doing playwriting and stand up comedy. He spent like seven years doing that. He has a degree from Yale drama, for God's sake. And he spent almost a decade as a as a professional playwright writing hundreds of plays in New York City, quit that when the management changed and decided to become an actor and stand-up full-time. Did that for almost a decade and then hit it big and got nationally famous at age 50. And he's never stopped working since then. That was 23 years ago. Yeah, and and so like the thing, you know, I've been kind of quiet and kind of letting you lay out the, set the entire table because to ex to painfully extend this metaphor, I'm only here for the sides, which is to say I've only ever known Black as a stand-up. Like, I I have never really watched The Daily Show, so I was completely unaware that he had a, a long-standing segment on that. I, you know, I saw him in Inside Out, but beyond that, I gunned to my head. I don't know if I could tell you before reading your notes. Um, another film role that he had, a real one. So in my mind, Lewis Black has always been a more political than average, angry, brilliant stand-up comic. And that is yeah. that is all I know him as. And you know what? I think that's a lot of people, truly. You know, a lot of why I know as much about him as I do is because I decided to pick up his books. Sure. Um, and I'll be honest, I picked up his books because I was browsing my public library one day and they happened to have his first two books there. And I was like, oh, my God, I yes, I want to read Lewis Black's books. Yes, absolutely. I want to <laughs> read Lewis Black's Treaties on Atheism, which is actually like. Me of Little Faith is my favorite of his books. Um, I have pointed to it as a really instructive book in terms of my own um, coming to be okay with atheism. Mm. Um, in the sense of, uh, you know, I I talked about this when I did our new our segment on new atheists. Um, I was really shitty as an atheist for a while. I was very angry. I was very bitter. I was very insulting towards religion. Lewis Black's Me of Little Faith is a book that is very angry at religion in a lot of ways, but also has a big sense of humor about it and has a lot of peace and patience for, like, surprising for Lewis Black, a lot of peace and grace and patience and love for people who have faith. And that stuck with me. Yeah, that's, that's I, really... That's really... 
beautiful is a little too saccharine of a word, but I really respect that. I mean, in fairness, there's like the short, I, I, I still remember this. The shortest chapter in that entire book is less than a page long. It's maybe like four paragraphs. And it's Lewis Black basically talking about how he um, has heard religious people his entire life talk about the feeling of euphoria. The idea of just like the world being perfectly in sync and like there is a purpose to everything and that there's a beauty to how existence functions. And that literally the only time in his life that he's ever remembered experiencing that was one time where he went to a golf course. Like he went golfing very, very early in the morning when there was nobody there. And he had like a beautiful long drive on a really difficult golf hole. Um, And it was one of the best drives of his life. And it was a quiet cool morning there was still dew on the ground it was a beautiful day and he just thought oh this this is the bet this is the closest i've ever felt to understanding what these people are talking about it's so short it's as close to saccharin as black ever gets yeah but that but that one page in that book has stuck with me I, I probably read that book, God, uh, it's too, I read that book over a decade ago for sure, probably 12 or 13 years ago, and it's, I still remember it. I still remember that one page, like, vividly. So, I don't know, that always hit me. And, again, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff until I decided to pick up the books, which I'm sure he got published because they were like, oh, this is the dude who's on The Daily Show. And he's, like, in that Justin Long movie. If he pu- if we publish his book, it'll sell, right? The Dennis Miller books sell. The Jeff Foxworthy books sell. And I can absolutely see it, yeah. And it's... it's That, that one in particular is fascinating to me. I think I want to read all of these. Um, but, you know... It's it's not surprising Lewis Black's an atheist. You definitely pick up on that in, in his stand-up. But the other thing... He said it at the beginning of one of his specials. Right, absolutely. But the other thing is so many of his jokes um, have this very tongue-in-cheek, sardonic kind of... Like, he, he references being Jewish a lot in this very how other people must think of it kind of way. I'm going to put in a drop in here uh, because to try and imitate it would be very, very bad for me. Uh, that's fair. <laughs> the waitress asked, who was the performer tonight? We replied, Lewis Black. She said, isn't he a Jew? He can say it. We can't. Exactly. Um, but yeah, like, like Black's, the intersection of, of his former faith and current uh, lack of faith, it's it's definitely something to chew on and interesting. And, and I, I don't think you're wrong. Um, he probably absolutely got these because like, oh, it's a face and we can sell this in the airport. Let's go. But for, for there to be a, even a nugget in that that could impact you in such a way, and I'm sure impact several other people in a, in a very poignant way, that's great. That's awesome. 
Yeah. So um, I'm going to move on because I don't want to just sit here and spend all our time on this. But to kind of talk about his work and why I love him. Absolutely. You tell me if you agree with this statement or not, Andy. Anything Black writes, whether it's his books, his comedy, or any of his plays, if you can get a hold of them. They're actually very, very hard to find. Um, They're always concerned with, above anything else, pointing out the stupidity of the world. And that has been very instructive to me as someone who has been watching him since I was a child. I remember watching his early Comedy Central Presents specials when I was probably 9 or 10 years old. uh, Maybe just a little bit older. And being very confused, but tacitly interested in his ability to insult both George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton in the same breath. Like, he has a... I don't remember which special it is. I I think it's one of the early ones, because I feel like I remember him wearing a suit. And in the later ones, he's wearing, like, a leather jacket. But he says outright at one point uh, in the special, people ask what the difference between a Democrat and a Republican is. Easy. A Democrat blows, a Republican sucks. That's not a hot take anymore. I'm not sure that's been a hot take for a while. That's that's a very old joke. But in the days where basically no one was saying that on national TV, except for Bill Hicks, George Carlin, and occasionally Chris Rock, all of whom were being censored regularly anyway, that was a seed that kind of got planted in my head that never fully went away like you got to keep in mind I'm sitting here going like as far as I understand politics I understand my parents are Democrats Democrats good Republicans not good reasons why Republicans not good racism and shitty tax policy I don't know what tax policy really is but I know they have shitty tax policy like I'm 10 and Watching Lewis Black specials was some of the earliest introduction I had to the idea of, no, it's just a bad system. From the word go. It is stupid. From the word go. And yes, you're allowed to be angry about that fact. You know what that makes me think more than anything? Because I... I grew up very much the same way, a little more um, Republicans good, Democrats are spineless spawns of the devil. Yes, including your grandfather. Um, that makes me think <laughs> of how toxic bipartisan culture can be to, uh, to, to the youth of America. But that's a conversation for another time. I mean... Uh... Whatever, whatever media tells you, uh, kids, most people end up just sitting in the same political stances as the family that they grew up with, as their parents. That's usually how it works out. Most people, if they dabble in the other side, they dabble in it as a bit of teenage rebellion. And even then, not many even do that. Yeah. So, yeah. But I just... My parents loved Bill Clinton back then. They deny it a little bit now, but like they, back then, they loved Bill Clinton. I remember my dad talking about how great a president Bill Clinton was, and I can sit here and be like, eh, that tax, ref- that welfare bill was pretty shitty, dad. <laughs> um, 
Listen, I don't even need to talk about affairs in the White House to talk about bombing Kosovo. Like, dude's a war criminal. And the and the thing is, that rolls off my tongue so easily right now. At the time that I'm hearing Louis Black, I didn't know Bill Hicks. I didn't know Richard Pryor. I didn't know George Carlin. I didn't know these other comedians. I didn't know Christopher Hitchens. I didn't know Cornell West. I didn't know political thinkers who are willing to say, hey, here's why both parties really, really suck. You and I did an entire thing about the two-party system. Like, it's... It's... Black was the earliest introduction I had to that. And that's just me being a 10-year-old kid with cable. And I can trace so much of that openness of thought. And you know what? Yeah, that anger to Louis Black. Louis Black was one of the first comedians that I can remember memorizing his bits so that I could recite them on the playground. <laughs> and and okay, and to that end, like I do want to talk a little bit about him as a performer because yes, he has insightful politics, but he also has and he has this incredible perspective on the mundane annoyances of life. You know, he'll do an entire bit about like how stupid it is that he's sitting in a Waffle House and he hears a young woman say, if it weren't for my horse, I wouldn't have spent that year in college. And how he can't stop thinking about that until blood shoots out of his nose. Like, brilliant. And I've, here's the thing. He commits these bits with a rage and focus and perfect delivery. Like, I've studied his work. I've studied the same specials and jokes in multiple places, multiple different recordings. And he's honed everything down to the most minor cadences. Nobody does anger better than Black. Yeah. You mentioned Kinnison earlier. We've talked about Kinnison before, way back when. Black was working when Kinnison was big, but unlike Kinnison's anger, Black was never as loud as Kinnison. Sadophilus milk, milk doesn't need a friend. That shit belongs in the yogurt section. Lactose intolerant milk, kiss my dick. He was loud, but he was never that loud. He never screamed like that. He was smarter, he was better timed, he was better delivered, he was less obsessed with being over the top and more obsessed with hitting that cadence that would just dig into you. And it was just like he'd point that fucking finger of his as he was just talking about something that made him angry. And he would stutter a little bit. And he would just be so overcome with that emotion of rage that he didn't have to be loud. You understood that not only was he angry, he was right. Right, yeah. Yeah, Kinnison, it, it would always be the howl and the shriek and the scream. And with Lewis Black, it was the goddamn clenched mouth vitriol rage. And I fucking could never get enough of it. <laughs> sure, I get it, man. <laughs> oh, God. And a lot of way, like, Lewis Black is... I mentioned that, you, that Huey Freeman is my, like... I, th- I think Huey Freeman is my conscience, but Lewis Black is my Jiminy Cricket. That's just goddamn delightful. I just, I just, he's, he's, he's got the hat and he's got the shitty socks and he's complaining about the shitty socks the entire time. Like, yeah, I I think, I think Lewis Black is my Jiminy Cricket. I think I just need to accept that. That Guillermo del Toro movie hasn't come out yet. There's still time for a casting announcement. 
<laughs> I would be here for that. Either that or the angriest Geppetto that ever was. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but yeah, that's that's my love there on Lewis Black. I, I just want to wrap on the idea, and I've mentioned this already, that I'm impressed with the man's career above anything else, you know? Until I read his books, I had no idea that he was a playwright. The fact that he had an entire career, and a moderately successful one at that, before really devoting himself to comedy, did that for almost a decade before breaking through with his first special at fucking 50, dude, and has not stopped doing quality work for 23 more years. That's astounding to me. He's 73. And he is still working. He has never slowed down as far as I have ever seen. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't think he's even taken breaks because when he takes a break, he comes out with a book. So mm. I, I don't even know. But I think he has a really under under understood um, story. And I think his work is top notch. I think any special of his you can pluck out. And even if the references are old the comedy still holds up. I think he's an incredible performer and I wanted to highlight him. So I appreciate you letting me do that, Andy. I appreciate you highlighting him. I, you know, we didn't really talk about our topics beforehand um, before sending notes. So I, I didn't know this was going to be on the docket and, you know, I, I definitely adore Lewis black. I feel like now I need to know a little bit more about him. So thank you for helping start that process, dear boy. Absolutely. Shall we get to the hate? Yeah. Gonna take a sharp left turn. All right. Um, so I'll be I'll be honest with you. This is gonna be very much a screaming into the ether um PSA without any real solution. Alex, I don't even know exactly what to call this topic as of recording. Um I asked a little bit into that, so yeah, so I'm going to start with this. When you would uh, come home from school after quoting a bunch of Lewis Black during recess, did you mm. ever turn on Toonami and and play a, a show or watch a show by the name of Roni Kenshin? I've heard that title, um, but I I really don't know. I I'm trying to picture it in my mind, and I think I'm just picturing Inuasha. So <laughs> sure, I. Cause, cause it's all just anime with Japanese names that I didn't watch. So I gotcha. Uh, and, yeah. and that's fine. All you need to know, all the audience really needs to know. Roroni Kenshin was a, a anime about a samurai and it was very well received. Very, very popular anime played on Toonami when I was growing up. Okay. And I asked you this and you gave this smattering of context because my hate this week was born out of thinking about the man who created Roroni Kenshin, the, the author and artist of the manga, who's a guy by the name of Nobuhiro Watsuki. Watsuki was charged with possession of child pornography in 2017. And so I was trying to come up with my hate and, and trying to come up with this thing and, and wanted to, wanted to zoom in, wanted to, wanted to narrow my focus on this guy, this person who is a pedophile and, you know, was busted for child pornography and talk about his whole story, especially talk about the punishment. 
but there barely is anything to talk about there. And so this shifted into what I really want to talk about. You know, all that happened to Nobuhiro Watsuki, uh, the manga went on hiatus for a few months. Like, like he got arrested in November and the manga came back in February and Watsky paid a fine of 200,000 yen, which in today's exchange rate is roughly two grand and probably wasn't that different then. And then went back to work, presumably on a sex offender list, but that's it. Um, and more than, more than that's it, more than the guy, you know, spent a couple months in jail and got a slap on the wrist he his work is still in publication and is like still revered and 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 thought incredibly highly in japan especially um you know last year a mural was put up in a tokyo bus station of a bunch of different characters from Roroni kenshin drawn by 14 other uh popular manga artists and it was this whole thing on twitter of like oh honoring our friend for for such a, a great 20 year career in the industry and like celebrating this dude who two years prior was arrested for child porn. So this got my head spinning to all the other examples I could think of. And and so that's what I kind of want to talk about. I, at, at first I was calling this celebrity pedophilia. Um, maybe this is just celebrity sex offenders Maybe this is like, I can't, I can't think of a two word title. What I really want to talk about is I hate the bubble of protection that celebrities have or seem to have in lots of cases when it comes to problematic and criminal behaviors. So, okay. Let me, let me probe here for a second just to see if I can help narrow this down. And to be very clear, I have no interest in playing devil's advocate here. Sure. I'm trying to narrow your focus. Um, are you upset when a celebrity gets a slap on the wrist for breaking the law, but breaking the law by doing something like illegal drugs or property damage? No. Okay. Are you are you bothered when they get a slap on the wrist for something? Or, or are you quite as bothered if they get a slap on the wrist for something like, I don't know, av- aggravated assault? Like they beat somebody up in a nightclub or something like that. They got into a fight. Yes. Yeah, I see okay. I see where you're going and I think I think the problem is I'm like I'm mad when it when there is a human victim component when when they do damage to someone else. Sure. So, I'm I I'll admit this is uh my my expertise in this subject um follows mostly musicians because that's the thing that I'm most obsessed with most of the time is sure. music. Um, and I can give a litany of musicians that have done absolutely horrible shit and for the most part gotten off scot-free 
I can probably count on like one hand the number of musicians who've actually like faced serious consequences for anything that they've done wrong. Like it's basically Gary Glitter and Sid Vicious. Sure. Yeah. I think. Um, and that one uh Louisiana rapper who ate a guy. Um but he wasn't even that good, so I don't even remember his name. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but like other than that, I I, I can list off ridiculous amounts of shit. And you want to talk about child pornography? Like, Gary, yeah, Gary Glitter went to prison for that, served out his sentence. What about Pete Townsend? Did did you did did you know Pete Townsend got <laughs> investigated for child pornography? I, I did not, as a matter of fact. So, um. He was investigated for it, uh, officially speaking. He was never um, formally charged or convicted with it, but he was part of a uh, investigation. He did get probation because he admitted to using his credit card to access a child pornography site. He did. His excuse was he was saying that he was doing it um, as part of, um, I guess, helping out with a investigation by a child abuse charity to like investigate British banks that were apparently allowing transactions like that to happen on child pornography sites. Like it's very murky. Officially speaking, he was never charged with anything, but it's, and and his excuse is not satisfactory to a lot of people, but it's there. Yeah. It's known. You know, you, um, part of what I'm yeah. really railing against, part of what really makes me angry is inconsistency. Okay. You know, because there are so many people I can point to who did face actual repercussions, but it seems like there are people that we completely demonized deservedly so and then other people who get four months in jail you know for 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 every bill cosby we also have a chris delia who was this close to launching a comeback as a comedian and was going to be in the Zack snyder army of the dead film um and, and, you know, I'm glad he kind of fucked up his career relaunch and got kicked off that movie and is sort of fading back into obscurity. But for every Harvey Weinstein, who's going to die in prison and deserves to, um, you get Roman, uh, Woody Allen and Roman Polanski, who got a standing, ova- standing ovation at Cannes and gets to just kind of hang out in France. Mm-hmm. And you get David Bowie who we've talked about and who, who, you know, I love, but you know, we, we brought it up in the, in the double O special. You got David Bowie who slept with a minor. You've got mm-hmm. R Kelly. You've got Brian Peck. And if you're wondering who the hell Brian Peck is, he was a, a bit part in facts of life. Um, he went to jail for 16 months for um, child pornography. And now he's working on Disney shows. With kids. You know, Jared Fogle is never going to see the outside of a prison, probably. But 
pick any pick Pete Townsend and you know Pete Town Pete Townsend has a uh, a pretty shallow paper thin defense but I guess he's got a defense I mean you know you said it yourself pick pick plenty of other actors musicians politicians we're not even going to talk about Jeffrey Epstein we don't have time to talk about Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> sure and I mean it's I have said it before on this show. We all pick who we support. And we all pick the things that we're going to look the other way on. Bill Murray's a domestic abuser. So is is Michael Fassbender. Yeah. So is Sean Penn. And, you know, I just talked about... Just talking about Palestinian Magneto. The dude who's been playing Magneto for years. Domestic abuser. We know this. We know this about him. And... Still, I mean, I'm going to be honest. Like, am I going to see a movie for Michael Fassbender? No. I don't love him that much. Am I going to not see a movie because Michael Fassbender's in it? Um, I, I, I really want to tell you, Andy, that I wouldn't, but it hasn't borne out that way. Sure. Scarlett, jo- Scarlett Johansson has said horrible shit about Palestinians. Gal Gadot was literally in the IDF. I saw Wonder Woman. I've watched the Marvel movies. I it's it's you you end up doing this weird pick and choose dance. I've stopped paying for Woody Allen movies because Woody Allen is horrifying. Is it wrong to say that it is the pedophilia aspect, the child porn aspect? that raises it above the pale in my mind. I mean, no, not necessarily. You can that we all need to draw our lines. Just like capitalism is not consensual, if you're going to exist in this world with any modicum of livability, you have to make ethical compromises. That's just a fact. The alternative is to completely remove yourself from society completely turn out of it which you know you could say that the anarchists who do that are the most committed people there are um you know politically speaking i have a lot in common with those folks but i'm not doing what they're doing period my livability and my connection to this world are too important to me i compromise my ethics you compromise your ethics with this but if you're if your line the line you draw is kids i mean there are mobsters who have that rule. Yeah. You don't there are hitmen who have that rule. So there's something there there's something, and I guess this is, you know, saying a personal thing about myself. There's something about like the robbing of innocence, the the destroying of a young life of of potential of of somebody that doesn't know any better. And that's not to say that, you know, Harvey Weinstein's victims are um, any less in my eyes than child abuse victims or anything like that. But yeah, you know, I sit here even separating artists from art, even, even completely divorcing. Nobuhiro wrote a, uh, a very popular manga for 20 years. And I, back in the day, I loved Roroni Kenshin. I had a Roroni Kenshin shirt. Um, Will I watch Rurouni Kenshin? Probably not if I know it directly um, 
financially benefits the man, but if it was somehow free, maybe it was a good show. Um, even separating the artist from the art, it just feels there's so there's such an arbitrary coin flip thing going on here that that can be ignored by people. And the immediate counter argument I bring up, even playing devil's advocate to myself, is talking about rehabilitation and the idea of people changing the idea of forgiveness and like I've got time for that but how many times do you how I don't know the answer to this I don't know if you know the answer to this this is really just kind of a rhetorical question how many times do you find out that somebody you know becomes a repeat offender for such a thing or God, I don't know. I I came into this one with a lot less of any clearly defined here's what to do because I don't think I'm qualified to really talk about what can you do against celebrities in power abusing said power to, you know, get away with ruining other people's lives. <laughs> sure. Um I mean, here's here's the thing. Um we're left leaning on this podcast. Uh, we've never made any bones about that. Sure. And there's a lot of talk on the left about carceral liberalism. Um, people who are left of center or like to think that they're left of center because fucking the closest thing you have to the left in the United States is the actual, like, is a little right of actual center. Sure. Uh, in the rest of the world. But the like, you hear people talk about things like prison abolishment or... Um, you know, not not focusing on the car- carceral side of thing. That's uh, that is a legitimate um, stance of the left, and with reason, because a prison system, uh, this I the, the punitive system is inhumane, um, and I'm not going to get into all of the reasons that that is right here. Um, look up if you want to Google arguments against carceral liberalism. And read the entire first page of Google. Thank me later. <laughs> sure. Um, but point is this. Um, if you're going to be devoted to these ethics, that means you have to apply them a certain way. And that means supporting things that sometimes make you feel kind of gross. To wit, um, A few times a year, I probably scroll through Facebook or Twitter and see people make memes or jokes about hanging pedophiles. I understand where that comes from, but I don't believe in the death penalty. And if I don't believe in the death penalty, that means I don't believe in the death penalty for pedophiles. Mm -hmm. I've heard... I've heard and read arguments for forced sterilization of convicted pedophiles and sex offenders. And I don't support that either because I believe in bodily autonomy. The same reason why I believe that a pregnant person should be able to get an abortion at literally any point in the gestation period up to and including a day when that fetus could have potentially be viable. The same thing that informs that also informs for me 
that you can't forcibly sterilize anybody, that if you give that power to any authority, state or otherwise, it will be abused. It is unacceptable. What does that mean when you have a society where you have things like sex offenders? Um, I remember years ago reading a cracked article of all things. There was an interview with a person who owned a trailer park that was rented almost exclusively to sex offenders. Mm. And to wit, he didn't realize this was the case. He didn't do background checks. He inherited this trailer park, decided to run it. He didn't do background checks because they were expensive. He got people applying because the trailer park was nowhere near any parks or schools. Sure. And just discovered, like, he he let in a few people, learned later that they were sex offenders, and they had actually gotten other sex offenders who they knew to apply there because they were like, there's no parks or schools nearby. You can live here legally. And they don't do background checks. So you can actually live here. And this dude was at first horrified, and he's like, oh, my God, I have to get rid of all these people. But then he realized, okay, if I get rid of all these people... There's nowhere else for them to go. You're going to have a bunch of, you're going to have these people be homeless. You're going to have these people as indigents, as desperate, out and about. And it becomes the question. If you have, if you have a society where you have these rules and you have pedophiles or sex offenders who are not allowed within certain jurisdictions... Do you just want them to be street homeless? If your answer is yes, you are not interested in solutions. Because if you have pedophiles and sex offenders who are street homeless, you have people who are desperate to survive and more likely to do what they need to to survive. And guess what? They may have other things they're dealing with that are not that are going to make them more okay with doing other stuff that you're that another homeless person without those same issues would not do. You're not interested in solutions. You're interested in being angry and punitive. And that's not how a society should run. So I get your discomfort, Andrew. Mm -hmm. And I get that you don't really have a good solution because you don't want to sit here and be like, oh, I don't want to empower an abuser i don't think it's a bad instinct to believe in something like rehabilitation it's also not a bad thing to say i don't know enough about it because i'll tell you right now i don't i don't know enough about the psychology of how you rehabilitate someone with pedophilic or predatory mental issues. I know media tells me that they're mostly impossible to redeem. Um, but that's media. I don't know enough about it, but I know that you can't just leave them to die. Sure. Not if you want a society that works. However, when it comes to people with privilege who use that privilege to abuse the less powerful for their own ends like the examples you've listed here. I don't know, man. Draw your line where you need to. <laughs> yeah, because I, you know, so so real quick, I want to say, I think that's a very eloquent and and well thought out uh, response. And, and seriously, I thank you for kind of guiding 
my own thoughts as I was honestly, you know, sitting here floundering about the issue. I think they, I, I think where I fall on it is, is there is a, there is a line between punitive punishment and allowing the successful career proliferation of a career to continue to go after somebody does abuse their power, you know, for, for all of the, I, I think cancel culture is a good thing. And I think when cancel culture gets Kevin Spacey kicked out of Hollywood or, um, somebody kicked off of a show and, and unceremoniously written off. If, if you can prove that that person, you know, abused their power in such a way, I think, okay, good. They, I don't think Nobuhiro Watsuki deserves to like be put to the death penalty or, or something. But I also, I don't think Nobuhiro Watsuki deserves to be allowed to just keep writing his, his artwork and, and profiting from a successful manga. So I am going to follow in your footsteps and, and be brave enough to say, I don't have an answer. I don't have a solution. Um, you know, this is one of those ones where we talk about a hate that we don't have solved all the way. But I, I think what you said, Alex really kind of starts the conversation in, in a way that I like. So I appreciate you for that. Listen, anytime that I can draw random ass knowledge from cracked articles and <laughs> hopefully, hopefully like inspire this tiny kernel of hope. Like I'd like to do that. Also like honestly, fuck powerful people. So by and large, indeed, uh. let's never become them. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. You want to move on to our question? Yes. With that, I forgot that I, I sent this to you and was like, okay, this has to be our new thing. So it's going to very, very much relate to what we've just been talking about, but I was gonna say, that was sure unintentional. I was going to say, are you sure this wasn't just like germinating for you? Like it, maybe this is what got it like growing in my subconscious. You're right. Um, all right. Um, you did the format. So shall I read? Sure. Go for it. All right. So title of this is I 28 year old female. am incredibly uncomfortable with my best friends, 28 year old male new quote unquote relationship with 18 year old female throw away because we follow each other on Reddit. Basically the story goes like this. Me and M have been best friends going on 10 years now. We met freshman year of college and just clicked. In case you're wondering, I am a lesbian. He has never had any issue getting women. And he is a really great guy, and I don't think he has bad intentions per se. Anyway, he recently broke up with his long-term GF, who was a 29-year-old female, and called off their wedding because he felt as if he wasn't ready to settle down. We tell each other almost everything. He had been unhappy for some time. I supported him, and he took time to get over it over it, and heal. A few weeks ago, he told me he met new girl K on Tinder. The thing is, K is 18 and technically still in high school, and although she, graduate, although she graduates this month, I think. 
Kay has a bad home life and wants to leave her home as soon as she graduates, based on what M has told me. M has been upfront that he doesn't want a serious relationship at all, just fun and sex. Somewhere down the line, they have agreed that once Kay graduates, she will live with M, rent and bill free, in exchange she has sex with him whenever he wants. This disgusts me for a few reasons, but the biggest being that she just turned 18 in January, according to her, and my friend is essentially prostituting an 18-year-old girl. They even talk about doing BDSM, and he gets so giddy. My thing is, he is a grown man, and can do what he wants, but it seems like he is exploiting a bad situation. Should I bring up how I feel? So, I have an idea for a name, but I don't necessarily know that I love it. Okay. Um, you know, my idea, the sort of the sort of flips some roles and dynamics around a little bit. But we were just talking about Woody Allen. This makes me think about Mia Farrow. <laughs> uh that's a little dark, Andy. Fair. What's your idea? Uh, you remember Pineapple Express? Yeah. Do you remember Seth Rogan's character in Pineapple Express? I mean, I remember Seth Rogen in Pineapple Express. Okay. So, uh, in Pineapple Express, Seth Rogen plays a stoner named Dale, who is 25 years old, and is dating a high schooler who I believe is played by Amber Heard. Um, And she is 18. And her name is Angie. And I feel like the best friend can be Saul, Dale's Jim. drug dealer, played by James Franco, speaking sure. of problematic dudes. Indeed. Um, so I'm thinking Dale, Saul, and Angie. I'm here for Express. it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, don't. Don't let him gonna. No, don't wanna. Look, we gotta get the F out of here. Let's go. We need to begin to prematurely evacuate. Are you high? What? No, I'm not high. What? You are high as a fucking kite. So, damn, two thirds of our uh, bill here are very problematic people in and of themselves, yeah. uh, actor-wise. But uh, we'll roll with it. So, we have Saul, who is uncomfortable with Dale's relationship with Angie. Mm-hmm. Do you want to start? Yeah, because, I mean, I I think Saul has every right to be incredibly uncomfortable. Um, this nestles, like I said, this nestles up so closely in everything we were just talking about. And, you know, I... You went and picked up a high schooler. Dale went and and found a girl and met this girl somehow who is still going to high school and has to worry about, like, passing chemistry so that she can... Tinder. They met on Tinder. Sure, indeed. Um, God, oh my God, I've never even thought about that, but... That's a whole basket of worms is the idea of a freshly 18 year old person who probably set up the Tinder account when they were 17, but yeah, what are you going to do? Mm. Um, 
I, I think that that Saul has every right to be uncomfortable and to bring up this is an uncomfortable situation. You met a girl on okay, okay. You met a girl on Tinder. This should have ended as soon as like as you're talking to them on Tinder, she brings up like, oh yeah, sorry, gonna be offline for a while. I gotta go to class. And then you follow up and find out she's not talking about college. Uh, I I think that it, I, I think that Saul has every right to be like this is a deeply problematic and um, toxic dynamic you have here. Even if even if Dale has the best of intentions, Dale is exploiting his power as a fully developed adult man exploiting the fact that Angie wants to get out of her living situation, exploiting the fact that Angie's brain is still developing because that shit's not really done until you're like 24. Sure. And it's, it's almost like, I remember a movie called Waiting, which is a a oh god a Ryan sex Reynolds, comedy, a, a Ryan Reynolds Dane Cook sex comedy, and it's a very 2004 thing. And one of the main plot points is Ryan Reynolds is lusting after the main hostess, but she is 17 and like nine months. And so he knows it's wrong and he knows if he did anything, it would be wrong, but God, he can't wait till she turns 18. And that's a very 2004 thing to make light of and make a joke about. But when you actually examine that is, is incredibly problematic and incredibly creepy. And this is just the other end of this. This is just, okay, oh, thank God, she's 18 and two months, so it's okay to do all the things. So, should you feel bad about bringing this up? No. Should you bring it up? Yes. This is pretty cut and dry for me. Yeah. Yeah, no, okay, I'm with you. Um, I'm sorry, did you have anything else? No, go for it. Yeah, no, um... Saul, I, okay, we were talking a moment ago about drawing your lines. Um, I will say, um, in the world of, like, one night stand, no strings attached, fuck buddy type relationships, if a 28-year-old and an 18-year-old, like, hook up on Tinder, and they just, like, fuck once and leave... You know what? Fucking fine. All right. It's not. I. 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 There's always an issue uh, when you're talking about a situation like this where people will want to infantilize the younger, usually female, um, member of the pairing and be like, "Oh, she's 18. She doesn't know what the fuck she's doing. She's a child." I'm like. No, you have to draw the line of adulthood somewhere. We have to respect people's autonomy. She's 18. She's not a child. She knows what she's getting into as far as hooking up. Mm. 
So I don't think Dale and Angie did anything wrong when they matched on Tinder and screwed a few times. Um, even if they're just like occasional like booty call buddies. Is it a little squeegee? Yeah, but uh, it's it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, it's, yeah. It's, this arrangement is definitely fucked up. Um, it's fucked up because if Angie's home life is bad enough that she thinks it is a good idea to move in with a adult man and live there bill and rent free and pay her rent via fucking um that's an exploitative relationship that is a problematic relationship and it's not like you know it's not like they have a and I'll get to this in a second because you do reference it in your question. It's not like they have a dom sub live in twenty four hours relationship, um, which would be troubled. But if they were doing it right, at least you'd have reassurances about informed consent. Mm. In this case, it's it's pretty clear her just being like, "My home life sucks. Let me fuck my way into this situation," which. I, I don't you just say she has a bad home life. I'm sitting here going, what kind of a bad home life? Um and the fact that he is willing to go along with it for the sake of fucking, like that's that's gross and disrespectful and awful. That he's giddy about the idea of trying out BDSM with her tells me that they have no business doing BDSM. Yeah. Because frankly, um BDSM is not something you do casually. Um I don't care what movies have shown you. It's the kind of thing where you're supposed to have a shit ton of really in-depth detailed conversations about boundaries and wants and dislikes and where you draw lines and what is an automatic no and how whether or not you go into subspace and whether or not you go into dom space and what is acceptable and what is like you should be having hours of conversations before you try even one bdsm session it's not something you just fucking dabble in so the fact that he's like giddy about maybe doing it with his 18 year old live-in fuck buddy is you have a perfect reason and a perfect right to be completely squeeged out by this, to be exceedingly uncomfortable about this, and to bring it up to him. Now, he may not listen to you. This may end up being a fight. I don't know. If you're... If he really respects your perspective, then giving it, That Well, it should matter. You giving that perspective. You saying, hey, this is what this situation looks like to me. These are the things that are really creepy about it, that are really squeegee about it, uh, that are really uncomfortable about it. I don't think this is a good idea. There are a 
here are all the ways it can go wrong. And even if it doesn't go wrong, here are the things that are just wrong about it. Like, ethically wrong about it. Yeah. I think the the fundament, the the groundwork of Saul's argument needs to be that more than the age gap thing, though kind of inspired by the age gap thing, it really seems like Dale is getting off on the power trip. You know, he's yeah. getting giddy about the idea of dominating this young woman. He's the, the, the entire living situation thing is just a, a total abuse of power. And, you know, you brought, you, you, you bring up trying to not infantilize Angie and, and you're right. Um, but at the same time, they're just, because it's, because such a big deal is made about it. I think it just does kind of set off a red flag of like, okay, how, how much is this? You just, would Dale be doing this if Angie was 27? If so, and, and, you know, maybe that's an avenue of conversation in your argument. And if so, and if he really, uh, if you believe him when he says that, then, that's a little better. It's it's still a the 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 living the the room and board for sex thing is maybe the grossest part about this. Honestly, no, that's um, the thing. Like I was I was about to say, like let's say she's ten years older. Let's say she's twenty eight, just like the two of you. And let's say, let's pretend she's not graduating high school. Let's pretend she is getting a divorce. Let's say she's getting a divorce and she's going to be out on her own. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, for the sake of argument, let's say that she spent the last 10 years um, as a housewife. She has no job experience. She's never worked a job before. She's all on her own. And she gives you this exact same offer. It would still be a fucked situation. Like, yeah. it doesn't have the added problem that of the 10-year age difference. But that would be an unethical, wrong situation. Like, the age thing is the shit icing on this shit cake of a situation where Saul, your friend, is being shit. And I understand he got out of a bad relationship. I understand him not wanting anything serious. I understand him wanting to, you know, fuck around a little bit with a... With people of legal age. That Okay, fine. That's alright. There's nothing wrong with those things. But this situation is wrong. And if you are the only one who is even considering telling him that. And, and you have even the slightest opportunity and the courage and the safety to do so. And you're wondering if you should. You should. Do the thing. Because a friend isn't a friend if you can't tell them the fucking truth when they are being awful. Yeah. We'll post this up in relationships.txt and um, Saul, I'm really hoping that 
you do the right thing here. Uh, I'm really hoping that Dale listens to you. Um, you know, the right thing here might be, if, if he really wants to be nice, helping Angie get on her feet somewhere else. Uh, maybe helping her find some roommates, a job, something, some, you know, some resources. Um, like, that would be a good thing to do. That would be a wonderful Samaritan thing to do. This dynamic is... It can only end horribly. There is no good ending to this. The best ending to this is Angie abandons the place without completely destroying anything or taking anything. And that's yeah. not to say, like, oh, Angie's clearly gold digging or anything like that. But, like, I can't imagine Angie's going to have a fulfilling existence this way. She's just going to leave one bad situation for what will at least to some degree be a better one, but in some other degrees are going to be worse ones. Yeah, and the you know the, the stated lack of seriousness to me is all the more reason to not have this be the thing that you're doing. And if there's any pushback to that line of reasoning, well then, okay, you're, you're not actually um, looking for something that isn't serious. You're looking for a, a situation you can control and manipulate. So, you know, this came to us from T uh, relationships.txt and we always love to get those uh, dear listener. If you have a relationship question, or if you have something that you find on relationships.txt or, you know, anywhere on the internet, it doesn't have to be your own relationship question, though we will absolutely take it and do our best to give our unqualified advice. You can send those into love, hate relationship podcast at gmail at gmail.com. We promise we'll listen. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Uh, check us out there. Read our tweets. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I don't think Palestinian Magneto is appearing on the LHR Twitter, but we did put up Bobby Manhattan, which is a mashup of King of the Hill <laughs> and Watchmen. Uh, as of the day of this recording, and that was a retweet, and that was just tons of fun. Um, you can follow us there to see what we're tweeting about or just keep up with new episodes. Absolutely. Um, you know, we talked about a lot of problematic actors. Um, on my other podcast, Cult Fiction, I watch movies that inevitably wind up um, involving problematic actors. There's oh, yeah. more than a couple of Miramax films that I've watched yeah. for that show. Um, uh, and again, that's cult fiction that I host with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. You can find that show everywhere. Alex listed. You can find LHR. And if you want, you can find me, Andy Bowell on Twitter at Jovocop two one one three. That's right. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, although I've kind of abandoned it. Uh, long story. Um, at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your enemies. 